So four years have gone past and actually things are pretty peaceful in Sushan. Esther is reigning as queen while Mordecai is looking after the king's business at the gate. Everything's going well until now because everything is about to change once again. The Jews are going to find themselves in danger of being killed at the whim of a man named Haman who hates the Jews. Now the book of Esther is one of five books of the Old Testament that the Jews call the writings. The other books are Ruth, Ecclesiastes, the Songs of Solomon and Lamentations. But even today at the yearly feast of Purim, the book of Esther is read publicly in the synagogue and when the reader mentions Haman's name, the people will stamp their feet, they will exclaim, may his name be blotted out. To Jews everywhere, Haman personifies everyone who has tried to exterminate the people of Israel and chapter 3 explains why he was such a dangerous man. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agite, over all the nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage, and he had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So, in the month of April, during the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence, and the lots were called Purim, to determine the best day and month to take action, and the day selected was March the 7th, nearly a year later. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There's a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it's not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. So on April the 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers and the governors of the respective provinces and the nobles of each province in their own script and language. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. 
Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March the 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all people so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. So things are beginning to hot up, getting a little bit exciting now. Um, so who is this man, Haman? Well, Haman was an Agite. He was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And he came, or at least most likely came, from the district of Agag. Now, the Amalekites were long-standing enemies of Israel. Their story goes right back to the time when is- of Israel's exodus from Egypt, when God's people were walking through the wilderness... It was the Amalekites who attacked them. In fact, they attacked the tired and the weak people at the very back of the group. An act of, well, cowardly terrorism. So Moses commanded Joshua to fight against them while Moses prayed. And if you remember the story or know the story, Moses is looking out over the battlefield with his hands raised and he is interceding on behalf of the people. And as long as Moses keeps his hands raised... Of course, they win the battle. Actually, the Bible tells us that it is God who has declared war on the Amalekites. He wants their name to be removed, to be blotted out from the face of the earth because of the evil that they have done against his people. So God told Moses to write it down in the book, in a book, so that they didn't forget about it. So just before the Israelites entered the promised land, this book is found, it is read out as a reminder to the people of the Amalekites' treachery. But that wasn't the end of the story. Later on, it was Saul, the first king of Israel, who was commanded by God to destroy the Amalekites. So when he fails to do so, to do as he is told, he ends up losing his own crown because Paul, or sorry, Saul didn't fully obey God, some of the Amalekites lived. And now we discover Haman, one of their descendants who seems determined to do what his ancestors had failed to do and annihilate the Jewish people. It may be interesting to note that King Saul, who failed to destroy the Amalekites, was actually a Benjamite. However, it's another Benjamite Mordecai, who would now take up the battle to defend Haman. It's also worth noting that the founder of the Amalekites was a descendant of Esau who battled with his brother Jacob. And it's a dramatic picture of the age-old conflict that has existed from the very beginning of time between the flesh and the spirit, between the way of faith versus the way of this world. This is what we sometimes call spiritual warfare. And we are in a spiritual battle. You may pretend you're not, but it doesn't change the fact that you actually are. 
The truth is, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are in a battle, and Satan and his demonic forces are out to try and stop the work of Jesus, and they will use whatever means is necessary. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be on your guard. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We used to have a cat who was an incredible hunter. And given the chance, he would hunt and he would catch rabbits, mice, birds, small children. No, not small children. But he, he would play with them. He would torment them. He would eventually kill them. And, and we found many decapitated rabbits on our kitchen floor. A cat that looked quiet and gentle was a vicious killer. And the reason why he was so successful was because he could sneak up so quietly and unnoticed and then pounce. More often than not, Satan does exactly the same thing. He is sneaky, he is devious, he is deadly. So beware and be careful that you know your enemy. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And this verse spells out the most important principle in spiritual warfare that for centuries the Christian church has just failed to follow, that your battle is not against flesh and blood. Never battle against people. Know who your enemy really is. But all too often we tend to forget this and we, we may want nothing to do with spiritual warfare, um, may even think that it's weird or somewhat scary to stand up against the devil to rebuke the enemy. And too many Christians are really reluctant to fight Satan but have become experts in battling people. So let's be honest. All of us have at times had find ourselves defending ourselves in anger or criticizing or rebuking or condemning others. The problem is that the Bible forbids fighting flesh and blood. Jesus actually says the complete opposite. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another, John 13. And the main reason why a defeated devil can be so consistently beating so-called victorious Christians is because that we fight against one another. We waste multiple hours criticizing others, condemning other denominations, or running down the way in which Christians do things. And in the process, we lose the real battle, and the devil is laughing at us because he is the only victor. And when you fight each other because you believe something slightly different, you're fighting your co-workers in Christ and you're not battling the one who really is causing the problems. Fighting people never advances the kingdom of God, no matter how much you think you're right. You need to fight the right enemy. This is the most important principle of spiritual warfare and is by the power of prayer, both offensively and defensively, that you will demolish the spiritual forces of evil. So let's get practical. If you truly believe that the Holy Spirit is able to speak into the hearts of people and that he has a far greater level of influence than you will ever have, shouldn't we first take every concern, every observation, everything to him in prayer? The whole hymn puts it beautifully. 
Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Unfortunately, we often come to God only after we've taken matters into our own hands, failed, and then left a trail of bruised and damaged hearts in the wake. And all the time, we are convinced that we are absolutely right. So is your first impulse to pray? Or do you believe that you can do a better job than the Holy Spirit? Can you really sort out conflict better than the Spirit of God? See, any action you take without first of all coming to God with heartfelt prayer and intercessions comes out of an attitude of immense pride. You're basically saying, I can handle things better than God can. Listen, God loves people far better than you will ever do. And he is infinitely more capable than you will ever be. So if you truly believe this and understand that God is sovereignly in control, you would be in constant prayer for one another and for the situations in which you face. But back to our story. It would appear that everything about Haman is hateful. But he paints for us this rather dramatic picture of actually what Satan is so often like. In fact, it's hard to find anything about this man that's worthy of praise. Perhaps Proverbs chapter 6 verse 16 to 19 sum Haman up only too well. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And sadly, we see all of these evil characteristics in the life of this deprived man. But despite all of this, Xerxes decides to make Haman chief officer of the empire. It's hard to understand why a wicked man like Haman gets promoted to such a great job, while Mordecai, who has saved the king's life, doesn't receive a word of thanks. But even though this seems to be unjust, God knows what he is doing, and you can be certain that he will never forget or forsake the righteous. The chances are... Haman probably flattered and talked his way into this powerful position because this is the sort of man that he was. He was proud and his only goal was to achieve authority and recognition. And as we saw back in chapter one, the king is so easily manipulated, he's gullible, he's susceptible to flattery. So Haman's job really wasn't that difficult after all. Haman was only concerned about himself and he was not content just to have a high position and to use it. He also wanted all of the public recognition and honor that he could find. He was a small man in a big job and thus is a dangerous, dangerous combination. See, pride blinds people to who they really are and it makes them insist on what they really don't deserve. The English poet and writer Walter Savage Lander wrote, when little men cast shadows, it's a sign that the sun is setting. Haman was a little man, but his vanity compels him to make himself look and sound bigger than he really was. You see, 
people are not going to bow down and respect Haman unless the king issues a decree to make them honor him. And even Haman knew that. For Haman, his importance only came from his office and from an edict from the king. This is a reminder to all of us that what people do with their authority is a test of their character. Authority can be used either to promote yourself or to promote others. It can be used to glorify yourself or to glorify God. Albert Einstein said, try not to make Try not to become a man of success, but try to become a man of value. Men and women of value earn the respect and the recognition that they deserve. So in contrast to Haman, Mordecai was a man of value. Not that it's false, of course, but when he refused to bow down before Haman, he was doing a highly dangerous thing. It's always highly risky to resist a proud, ambitious man like Haman. It's also extremely dangerous to ignore the command of the king, as Vashti had discovered to her own cost. But Mordecai's refusal wasn't out of pride or petulance. It was simply obedience to the law of the God of the Jews, which he had not forgotten, despite the fact that they had been in captivity for many, many years. As Jesus later summarizes in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Mordecai's controversy with Haman was not a personal quarrel with a proud and difficult man. Mordecai was declaring that he was on God's side. Listen, God had promised to protect his people because it was through this nation that the blessing of salvation would come to the whole earth. Keep in mind that the extermination of the Jews would mean an end to the promised Messiah, to Jesus entering into this world, and hope and salvation would be lost, not just for one nation, but for all nations. So this is not some sort of personal vendetta against Haman. This is enlisting in the perpetual battle against the work of the enemy of God. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Satan wants to destroy the work of God. So Mordecai's act of civil disobedience was more than a matter of conscience. It was to honor and to further the work of God. Just like Daniel and his three friends who refused to eat the king's food. Like the Hebrew midwives who refused to kill the Jewish baby boys. Or like the apostles who refused to stop witnessing in Jerusalem and declared, we must obey God rather than man. But please let me just add a note of caution in here. Because in every example, these people had a direct word from God that gave them the assurance that they were doing the will of God. But also in every instance, they were kind and respectful. They didn't start riots. They, they weren't destroying property or buildings because civil authority is ordained by God. Romans 13 tells us that. It is always a serious thing for a Christian to disobey the law. So if you ever feel that you're in a situation where you feel forced to civil disobedience, which by the way should be very rarely, you need to make sure that it's a biblical conviction in accordance with the word of God and not some sort of personal vendetta or prejudice. And you need a safeguard in place. 
The safeguard is knowing God's word because it's God's word that will protect you. Jesus effectively and powerfully speaks the word of God, but of course Jesus is the word of God and he is our example. And like him, we need to know and to believe God's word and then live by it. But crucially, you also need to be convinced that following God's way is the, is the only way to true blessing, to true happiness, and to true freedom in and through Jesus Christ. So obedience to conscience and to the will of God is no casual matter and it should not be taken lightly. But there are matters of truth, there are matters of faith and matters of doctrine that we need to be prepared to stand for with dignity and with integrity. Like Martin Luther who said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. Mordecai had his own shortcomings and he's not a perfect man as we've said. Particularly in reference to his religious beliefs but you've got to admire him for his courage to stand. And what will become increasingly clear as we move through this story is that God has put him and put Esther in this official position so that they might save the people. So their neglect of Jewish law is incidental when you consider the courage in risking their lives for the very purposes of God. But this also leads us to another question we need to ask. Is it ever really dangerous to take a risk for the cause of God? And I want to suggest that surely Mordecai was safe. Though he doesn't know it at the time any more than we know it when we're going through difficult and challenging situations. But it's always safe to obey Jesus. It's always safe to obey Jesus, even when standing up for him threatens to bring disaster of of catastrophic proportions. There is absolute safety and security for God's people who walk obediently to his will and to his purposes. In Jesus Christ, you have eternal security. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul picks up this theme. In fact, he focuses on our position in Christ and our eternal relationship with God. It's just a wonderful account of what God has done to forgive and and how he's reconciled us when we have become born again of the Spirit of God. Just listen to these words. God has blessed you in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose you in him before the creation of this world. He has predestined you for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. He has lavished grace upon you. In him you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. He has made known to you the mystery of his will. You have obtained an inheritance. You are sealed in him. You were dead, but God has made you alive together with Christ. He washed you and has forgiven you. You were saved by grace and not of yourself, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Once you were separate and far off, now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ is your peace and through him you have access to the Father by one spirit. You are no longer strangers but fellow citizens and are members of God's household. This is who you are. 
You are recipients of all of these wonderful blessings from God. And whether you believe it or not, this is God's word. And therefore, it is true. And there is nothing and there is no one who can take this away from you. So could Haman fight against the people of God and win? Well, Haman certainly thought he could. And it looks as if his, this is his perfect opportunity. So let's just follow the steps of, that Haman took and to, to put his plan together to destroy the people of God. But at the same time, let us understand that it's God who is at work behind the scenes. He is the one who is orchestrating these events, unknown, unseen to most of the people around at that time. So Haman selected a day. He's convinced that he is able to deceive, to flatter, to bribe the king into agreeing, so much so that he throws the dice, literally he threw the dice and determined a lucky date for the slaughter before even approaching Xerxes. It's interesting that Haman begins this process in the month of Nisan, the very month in which the Jews celebrated the deliverance from Egypt. Like Satan, Haman was both a murderer and a liar. In fact, the actions of Haman are the very same tactics and classic tactics that Satan uses within each and every one of our lives as well. So to begin with, he doesn't even give the king the name of the people who are supposed to be subverting the kingdom. Dangerous manipulation that was designed to make things sound much worse than they really were. And then, of course, he uses half-truths. So when he says that their customs are different from those of all other people in verse 8, he is only partially right because the laws were different because these are God's chosen people. But when Moses asked in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 8, what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I am setting before you today? The answer was, of course, back then and still is now, there is none. These laws are good laws. They are righteous laws, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all people. Haman, of course, doesn't care to mention how righteous these laws actually are. Then he goes even further. See, the fact that Mordecai has broken one law was exaggerated by Haman to include all Jews who were disobeying all of the laws of the land. But actually, the Jews are actually very good citizens. And the evidence seems to suggest the vast majority of Jews are obeying the king. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7, Jeremiah told the Jews in exile to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I am carrying you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too shall prosper. This doesn't sound like the words of a group of people who are very rebellious. The truth is, if the Jews of Persia had been troublemakers, Xerxes would have heard about them and probably have done something about them a long time ago. Finally, Haman finishes his speech with a grand gesture. He offers to pay the king 10,000 talents of silver for the privilege of getting rid of this dangerous people. The Greek historian heard Herodotus says that the annual income of the entire Persian Empire was 15,000 talents of silver. So Haman is offering to pay two-thirds of that total annual income of this entire place. 
Haman must have been an incredibly wealthy man. Of course, he hopes to get back some of that amount of money from the spoils that he plans to take from the Jews. And then in, chapter, in, in verse 11, the king response seems to suggest that the king is rejecting the money and offering to cover the cost himself. But of course, this is typical of Eastern culture. The king is just politely rejecting the offer, fully expecting Haman to insist that he accept it. It's actually very similar to when my, me and my dad go out for a meal and my dad offers to pay and then I make a counter offer and say, no dad, I'll pay. Then he says, no, I'll pay. And we have this polite standoff until eventually one of us gives in and then it's normally the first person who's made the offer gets the privilege of paying. So it was back in those days. But I wonder, did Haman go quiet when the king rejected his offer? We're not actually told. But he even got one thing right. The king was easy to convince. Without questioning, the king gave Haman his royal signet ring, which, which gives him the authority to act in the king's name. It meant that Haman could write any document he wanted and put it into print, and it meant that it would become law and must be obeyed. It was a crazy thing to do. But true to character, Xerxes acts first and then thinks later. Unknown to the Jews, Haman is busy writing a new law, getting it translated into multiple languages so it can be distributed throughout the land. Haman's subtle plan was working. Haman must have been very satisfied with his success. The only thing that must have annoyed him a bit was the fact that the dice had fallen in the month of Adar, the 13th, month, the 13th day of the 12th month, which meant there was nearly a year to wait However, as you know, the story of Esther is a story about the underlying providence and sovereignty of God. So nothing happens randomly with God. And this roll of the dice was, of course, no difference. The Jews now had a whole year to get ready and, and Mordecai and Esther had time to prepare and we need to remember the words of Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. Haman, of course, had a year to nurse his grudge and to enjoy his revenge and watch the Jews panic and think that he was actually in control. And I'm sure what's going through his head at that particular moment is that even if these Jews take advantage of this time gap and they leave the empire, well, he still won. They've gone. Either way, this decree has been set. Surely nothing could be more certain than the king's unalterable seal. Haman had signed the death warrant for thousands of innocent people. And then he sat down and had a banquet with the king. He truly had a callous heart. Helen Keller writes, Science may have found a cure for most evils, but it's found no remedy for the worst of them all, the apathy of human beings. And Jesus vividly illustrates this apathy in a parable about a good Samaritan. He points out how two religious men, a priest and a Levite, ignore the needs of a dying man, while it's a Samaritan, a hated outsider, who sacrifices time and money to take care of him. Jesus makes it very clear that loving the Lord ought to to make us love our neighbor. 
and that our neighbor is anyone who needs us. So before we're quick to condemn Haman, let us first of all examine our own hearts. There are millions of lost sinners in today's world who are under an eternal death sentence and most Christians do very little about it. We can sit in our churches and we can enjoy our worship and we can go home and enjoy a nice Sunday lunch, but do we take the message of the gospel to those who need to hear it? In June 1865, the missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, was staying with a friend in Brighton. He'd just come back from China. He was tired, he was sick, but he was also seeking the will of God for the future of his ministry. And on that Sunday, he writes... He says, I am unable to bear the sight of people rejoicing in church. He can't even go in there. So instead, he walks along the beach. He's wrestling with God. He's looking for direction. But he's in agony over lost souls. It was there that God met him and in a fresh way. He writes, all at once came the thought, if you are simply obeying the Lord. All the responsibility will rest on him, not on you. If you're simply obeying the Lord, all the responsibility will rest on him and not on you. He cries, what a relief. Well, I cried to God, you shall be responsible for them and for me. In that moment, he knew God was in control and it changed his entire perspective on everything. He trusted God to provide people to work with him in the inland province of China. Short time later, he founds the China Inland Mission. Of course, it's still going today. In less than one year, he accepted 21 missionaries. He raised over 2,000 pounds, the equivalent of about 150,000 pounds in today's money. You know, it's good. We have a great time in worship this morning. It is good to gather to worship God. In fact, it's important that we do gather to worship God. But worship and rejoicing must never be a substitute for responsibility. We need to share the message of the gospel. And the thing is that we, we don't have to be hard-hearted unbelievers like Haman to be apathetic and unconcerned about the millions of people who need to meet Jesus. If Haman could easily mobilize a group of men to take a message of hate out, surely we can get a message of love and hope out to our nation. And you need to live with one purpose in your life, one all-consuming passion to point others to Jesus. So who do we need? Well, we need Jesus. And who do we preach? We preach Jesus crucified for sinners and risen from the dead. And what must we do? Present Jesus. There's a community around us who needs to meet with Jesus. Our friends, our family, our neighbors. Don't underestimate the potential what God can do through you. But first and foremost, God wants your obedience. He wants you to depend completely on him. But let's talk about Jesus, the one who is mightier than any man, mightier than any king, greater than any obstacle. Jesus is passionate for his gospel and so should we. He is the savior of everyone who repents. He is God almighty, creator of all things, the giver of spiritual life. So give yourself wholly to him and wholeheartedly 
obey God, be filled with his spirit and walk in obedience to his will and to his purposes for your life each and every day. Let's just stand together. We've heard already, haven't we, has been worshiping from some of the, the words that have come through, the need to go. But also there's a need to stand as well. That's what this passage, passage has been about. Stand up for truth. Stand up for righteousness. To stand with integrity as we've heard already as well. But also we've got a message that needs to go out. Just as we close, I just want to pray over us as a church. Just for the release again of God's spirit. That would take us and send us. We need him. We need Jesus so we can introduce people to Jesus. We need his spirit so we can have the wisdom to know when to speak and what to speak. So Lord, we pray, spirit of God, just come and rest upon us afresh.